So this is, is a, a movie released in 1994 called Shawshank Redemption. It's an incredible movie with some language, but it's an incredible movie. And the story is that a man named Andy is convicted wrongfully of a double homicide, goes to prison in Maine, meets his best friend, Red. They become dear friends over 19 years. And so in the context of the movie, Andy, who's a banker and very gifted, um, is inside the room where there's a public address system. He's just been sent some books and some uh, records, vinyl records. And so he pulls out a vinyl record, which is The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. And he puts it on the turntable and he locks the doors and he turns it on full blast so that everyone in the prison can hear a beautiful duet. And, and Red has a voiceover as the, the music is playing and the voiceover is powerful. The voiceover goes like this. He says, uh, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It, it was like, some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank prison felt free. It's just a, it's a powerful statement. But, but, but he says that, that it, something came into his experience that was so beautiful that it can't be expressed in words and it makes your heart ache because of it. This morning, I want to talk about something that makes your heart ache with joy, but it can be expressed in words. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of grace. It's, it's what the, the Lord Christ has done for us on the cross. We're going to go to one verse it's, as we study this portion of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says to his young Son in the faith, you then, my son, be strengthened in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. You then, my son, my son, a term of incredible endearment. It can be translated my son or my child. You then, my son, be continually strengthened by the grace that can be found in Christ Jesus. You then points to a previous argument. The previous argument, I believe, was from the previous paragraph where we talked about a man named Onesiphorus who goes to Rome when Paul is between Roman guards. He's chained 24-7. He's facing death. And it says, Onesiphorus sought out me. He said he often refreshed me. Number one. Number two, he was not ashamed of my chains or the gospel. Number three, he searched earnestly and found me. So he, he loved the gospel and he, had a, he was a friend that would never give up on the apostle Paul and he refreshed the apostle Paul. And so Paul says, unlike the other two guys whose names are listed, whose names don't need to be mentioned, kind of like Lord Voldemort, if you read Harry Potter, these guys' names don't need to be mentioned or the name Benedict Arnold. I was thinking about American history, Benedict Arnold was a turncoat in the Revolutionary War. 
And I, we've had all these babies dedicated, all these years. I've never dedicated a Benedict. Never. Because names mean something. Anesiphorus. What a name. What a man. It means one who helps. So he refreshed. He says, says Timothy, as you look at that, that gospel representation of this man, Onesiphorus, you then, my son, be continually strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. So what's interesting about this uh, statement is that is Paul is asking Timothy to, to, to go to Ephesus, to stay in Ephesus, to be the leader of the church in this large, huge cosmopolitan city, this, this city that had something called the Temple of Artemis or Diana that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people would come from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to worship this goddess that was the goddess of hunting and fertility. And, and there would be kind of bizarre carnal worship activities in the temple. And you had, you had that. And you had all types of philosophical thoughts. You had all types of arts and entertainment in this city. And, and, and Paul does not say to Timothy, you then, my son, understand in, in, in a, a fashion that will allow you to debate with victory the intricacies of the worship of Diana. Become someone who's a defender of the faith as you think about Diana. He does not say, you then, my son, understand two major isms of that day, which is stoicism that says deny all joy or epicureanism that says embrace all joy and expose their fallacies. He does not say, understand the subculture called Ephesus. Now, all those things are important. And all, all those things need to be dealt with. But he says, primarily, Timothy, you then, my son, be strengthened continuously by the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. He says, Timothy, you've got to be mastered by the glory of the gospel. And here's my thesis this morning. If I am to go forward in faith, if I'm to stand against the enemy, if I'm to have a legacy of joy and courage, I must be mastered by the gospel of grace that's found in Jesus Christ. I've got to be a man who is mastered by that. Now, let me give you, give you this. It's a fatal tendency. There's a fatal tendency in the Christian faith that goes something like this. We give the gospel a passing glance. We assume the gospel. The gospel is there, but we're more concerned about A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And these things are not bad, necessarily, but it's, it's the gospel. And in, in Screw Tape Letters, Lewis says, we want to get believers, he's writing as the devil, we want to get the believers to be involved in Christianity and spelling reform, or Christianity and disarmament or Christianity and vegetarianism. Those are Lewis's words for his day in 1950. So he says, we need to get them to take their eyes off of the strong reality of Jesus. And I'm going to say this morning that, that Paul is trying to combat this fatal tendency to assume the gospel. I say this frequently. For every one look at your sin and your failure, and we're supposed to confess our sins, 
were to do with these things. But for every one look at your sin, make 25 trips to the cross and see the shed blood of the Savior who forgives you and loves you and embraces you. I mean, one, 25, one, 25. But what happens a lot of people, they do the one thing, they assume the gospel, but they're all about this and this and this and this and this. And I'm, I'm saying that is a fatal tendency that leads to disaster. Okay, so Ephesians 6, very famous passage. Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God or the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can take your stand against the devil and his minions. And after you've done everything, to stand firm. So it says, therefore, take on the full armor of God. And he says, put on the first piece, the, the belt of truth. Okay, the truth of scripture. Apostolic truth, okay? The belt of truth. And he says, put on the, the breastplate of righteousness. You say, well, what, is, what does that mean? Is that talking about my be behavior or what I do? I, no. If, if, if the breastplate you put on is what you do, your goodness, it is a paper mache covering. Doesn't work. The Bible says that Jesus is our righteousness. We talk about his freely given, all at one time righteousness or his imputed righteousness. So you put on the breastplate of righteousness, what Jesus has done for you in his perfect life and death on the cross. And he says, and may, may your, your feet be prepared by the gospel of peace. See the gospel of peace. There's peace between God and man because of the blood of the cross. There's peace between groups because Christ has broken down the dividing wall between ethnicities or classes. There's peace in the gospel. And, and, and then he says, I take up the, the shield of faith by which you can quench the fiery darts of the adversary. You know, what's the shield of faith? It's, it's not faith in people. It's not faith in yourself. It is not faith in your group. It's not faith in your subculture. It is not faith in your academic progress or whatever. It's faith in the work of Jesus on the cross that's finished. And then he says, put on the helmet of what? Salvation. <laughs> I mean, and then he says, take the sword of the spirit. So every piece of armor, either explicitly or implicitly is about the gospel. And so I, I step back and say, if, if I'm going to stand strong with the whole armor, I need to be a gospel-driven, cross-saturated person. As I go forward in joy and hope and laughter and purpose and dignity, I've got to get the gospel. Not just a, not just a passing glance, I've got to dwell there. So I'm gonna give you a brief historical overview of this guy. So to make my point about a fatal tendency, this guy's name is John Wesley. He's a, very, a younger man, artist rendition. He was born in 1703. He's a father of Methodism. So John Wesley, born into a home. His mom was incredible. Her name was Susanna. More about her later. Uh, his dad was Samuel, who was just, he was a pastor, but he, he, he didn't provide for his family well. He didn't look, he was kind of a regrettable guy. He had great, great kids. But nah. he, he worked 25 years on a commentary on the book of Job. 25 years. Never published. 25 years. Job. That's a long time, Job. Anyway, so, so that, that's, and his wife's, Wesley's wife, 
excuse me, Mother Susanna had 19 babies in 19 years. Yeah, I said it. 19 babies, 19 years. Boom, 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 boom. No, no, no twins. So she and her husband always had some marital fallouts and some issues, but obviously they got together occasionally. 19 babies in 19 years. You don't have to be a real bright to make that deduction. But anyway, so, so Wesley grew up in this home where he heard the gospel. He goes to Oxford. He was brilliant. His, his father really withheld buying basic necessities for his seven daughters to send his three boys to Oxford. And uh, Wesley went to Oxford, an honor student, uh, graduated. Um, he, at Oxford, he started something called the Holy Club. The Holy Club were a group of college students that were very sincere about their faith, and they were methodical about fasting two days a week. They were methodical about when they prayed and when they read the Bible. They were methodical about when they went to the prison to visit prisoners and help people that were underprivileged. They were methodical in how they spent their income, and they were called Methodists which in that day was a term of derision. They were saying, oh, you guys are just Methodists. And they were in the Holy Club. He was known for his holiness, for his commitment to the things of the Lord. So he's at Oxford. He stays there for about 12 years after he graduates or so. He's as an instructor and a tutor and uh, a very bright guy. And then at the age of about 31, 32, he decides that maybe the Lord is leading him to be a missionary in Georgia. And a colony, of course. And so he goes there to work with the Native Americans, but ends up working more with the church. Now, I'm trying to make this quick, but he, he goes to Georgia, and Wesley always had some issues with how to relate to women. He really did. I, I, I don't know why, but he had seven sisters. You'd think he'd figure it out. But, but he goes to Georgia. He's 32, 33. There's a 17-year-old there named Sophie, and he's attracted to her, and I, she thinks I'm attracted. She's attracted to him. But he writes her these letters about his, his, what he thinks about her, but they're so convoluted, she has no idea what he's saying. So if you ever court, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't have to, don't be panacea Shakespearean, just, just be honest. So she didn't know what he was saying. And as a result, she didn't know how to respond. And somebody else pursued her because she was a wonderful young woman. And she responded to him. And so Wesley's ticked off. And so she comes to take the Lord's Supper one day. And Wesley, as the pastor, doesn't give her the Lord's Supper. They came, he doesn't give her the Lord's Supper. She reaches out for it and he pulls it back. Well, in that day, if the pastor pulls it back, he knows something about you nobody else knows. And it's a statement about her character, which did not go well with her uncle, who was kind of a man's man. And he threatened Wesley. And Wesley jumped on a stagecoach or whatever and came to Charleston and went back to England. A broken guy. He gets to England... He met some people called Moravians from Germany. And these Moravians loved the gospel. And when there was a storm at sea, they were calm. And so Wesley goes and seeks out a Moravian Bible study on a street called Alders Gate, May of 1738. And he goes in, he kind of slips in the back, there are 30 people there, and the guy stands up and he starts reading the preface to the commentary on Romans by Martin Luther. Just the preface. And Luther, of course, started the Reformation kind of, sort of, and Luther talked about we're saved by faith alone, and Wesley sat there listening. He's a broken guy, and this is what he says. This is in the worship guide. He says, about a quarter before nine, while, I was while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone. 
for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. My heart was strangely warmed. And I trusted in Christ, and I trusted in Christ alone. Here's what I think happened. I think Wesley would have said before then, I've trusted in Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, yeah. But I've got to do, 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 do. In fact, if you read his biographers, one of his biographers writes this. He says that John Wesley was very busy. He says he was, he was very busy trying to find happiness by doing things for the Lord instead of resting in the work of Jesus. You can do that. I can do that. And it's called a fatal tendency and at least of what people, some people call miserable Christians, where you're always thinking about, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but I don't measure up, I don't measure up, I don't measure up, I'm a failure, I haven't achieved, I haven't done this, I haven't done, <clears throat> and so instead of majoring on the glory of the cross and walking in joy and forgiveness, we're majoring on what we have to do and haven't done, haven't done, I mean, it, it gets things all upside down. And so that, that's, that's what happened to Wesley. He, he, he was trying to find happiness by doing things instead of resting in Jesus. And I would plead with you to understand that and to understand the gospel. So I'm going to give you two points and maybe four points of application. So, so how, how to grapple with the gospel. Point number one is, let me just quote an old hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, when we say he's a wretch today, we mean he's a bad, bad, way gone dude. In the day the hymn was wrote, a wretch meant somebody that doesn't do what they should do. Basically, a sinner. They, 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 here's God's desire. Here's where they hit. They, they, they don't get it done right. Saved a wretch like me. If I'm going to, glory in the gospel. Step one, and this is in a culture of self-actualization, self-affirmation, self-magazine, how wonderful you are. The Bible says if I'm going to really glory in the gospel, I've got to realize this. When I was dead, when you were dead in your sins, God breathed life into your being by the Holy Spirit as you heard the gospel. Step, step one, you got to realize that you were dead, that you were, the Bible says, like everyone else, an object by nature of the wrath of God, that, that you deserved judgment. You know, Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord. He says, he, he forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. If I'm to glory in the gospel, I've got to realize that God has rescued me from the pit of bad decisions, turned inward living, uncaring attitudes. We have to constantly say, thanks be to God for, 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 for saving me from a pit of my own destruction. So, so I, I need to understand that. I read a book recently about the gospel going out in Ireland in the 1800s and the, the people went there had nine pithy little rules. Rule number five was this, let us frequently insist on the doctrine of original sin because it is fundamental to the gospel. Original sin means that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. That my whole being is impacted one way or another, one degree or another by sin. I didn't choose God, God worked in me. I didn't reason my way to faith, God opened my eyes to see. So if, I, if I'm going to glory in the gospel, that's what I must grapple with. 
13 months ago, we had a wild game banquet here. It's a big gathering of men, lots of food, lots of fellowship. It's a wonderful night. 13 months ago, our speaker was a man who'd been part of the inner circle of the mafia in New York. And he had taken a blood oath that if he ever betrayed the secrets of the mafia, he was to be killed. And, and he was involved in horrible activity. I mean, uh, embezzling, all, all types of stuff, drug run, I mean, everything. Made a lot of money. But he was in the inner circle of the inner circle and was really on, on his way to becoming the mafia kingpin and God saved him. God saved him. He became a believer and he, he left that lifestyle and he was supposed to be killed by the other mafia people, but they didn't. And so he's a trophy of grace. But man, you hear him talk and he's, he was, it was an incredible night. And it's easy to walk away from statements like that and say, wow, I was raised in a Christian home. And there was a time when I believed, but really I can't remember a time when I didn't trust Jesus. And I, man, I can understand why a guy like that really, really, really loves Jesus. And I'm I've never had that. Let me just say, don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Let me tell you why. Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And while he's there, a notorious woman who is immoral comes in and she anoints his feet, which is the most unholy part of a body in those days, his feet with precious ointment and then she unwraps her hair and she weeps and she takes her hair and she rubs the ointment and the tears in the feet of Jesus. And the aroma filled the house. And the Pharisees that were there were unhinged. What is going on? And one of the Pharisees, Simon, thought, he was thinking, he thought this is, if he knew who was touching him, he would be totally grossed out. So it's really, read the Gospels, it's kind of tricky to think thoughts in Jesus' presence because he can read minds. So he knew what Simon was saying, was thinking. He said, Simon, let me tell you a story. There is a guy that was owed money. One man owed him two months of wages. The other man owed him 20 months of wages, and he forgave both men. Which one do you think is the most thankful? And Simon, being a Pharisee who's working his way into the presence of God, says, well, of course, this guy. This is what Jesus says. He says, um, do you see this woman? I, I, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet her feet, my feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which is a sign of welcome, but, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And there, therefore, here's, here's the punchline. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved uh, much, but he who is forgiven loves little. Now, we have totally misunderstood this passage. We say, okay, yeah, he, he's been forgiven little, 
Loves a little, who's been forgiven much, loves much. Jesus is not saying there are degrees of people that have been forgiven because of their bad stuff. I think what he's saying to this Pharisee is get in touch with your heart. Understand that you are by nature an object of wrath. That you deserve judgment in your self-sufficient hypocritical pride. I say that in part because you go to the Sermon on the Mount and the Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. And Jesus says, you've heard, it said, you shall not murder. He says, but I tell you that if you look at your brother and you call him a blockhead, you've committed a murder in your heart and you've broken the sixth commandment. And everybody goes, wow. Now, block, if you, blockhead is not a horrible term. If somebody called you blockhead, you'd go, hey, man, whatever, and keep on going. It's not the most horrible term of derision. But he says, if, if you look down on anybody made in the image of God for any reason, you've broken the sixth commandment and you deserve judgment. And people went, you've got to be kidding me. And then in the next paragraph, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, without getting into too much detail, there was a school of thought called the Hillel School that was popular in the New Testament era. And the Hillel School said that... Uh, that there's a lot of things that you can do with a woman without breaking the seventh commandment. That's all. That's all. I just. So, so Jesus says, I know what some of you are thinking about that. He says, but I, I tell you that if you look at a woman with impure motives, you have broken the seventh commandment. And every every man there went, wow. Jesus saying, get in touch with your heart. And then you go forward to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, these men called his disciples have walked with Jesus. They have camped with Jesus. They have eaten with Jesus. They've watched Jesus cast out demons. They've watched Jesus preach. They've been with him. And this is the scenario. They're talking about marriage and divorce. And Jesus says, I tell you, it's God's desire for a man and a woman to be together in a covenant relationship for life. And he says, and, and, and he says basically, in, your, in that day, you could divorce your wife by standing up and saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you for any reason. Any, I mean, any reason. And Jesus says, but I tell you, if you leave your wife except for a marital sexual unfaithfulness, you sin against her and you sin against God. And the disciples kind of murmured, says, well, if that's the case, maybe we shouldn't get married. <laughs> Thank you guys for that insightful spirit. What he's saying is that he just elevates women. Someday we need to talk about the, the, the Christian roots of the Me Too movement, which I think is biblical. You protect, you defend, you care for women. Anyway, so, so you, you need to just know your heart. Number two, you, you've got to understand, I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but, but now I see. So in, in the book of Colossians, it talks about what the cross accomplished. And it says this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Hear the scripture. For, for you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. 
By his physical death, he has made us right with God. And, and, and so you, you go to the book of Galatians and where Paul is talking to a bunch of people that are, are giving a passing glance to the gospel, but they're getting back on the works bandwagon. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do to be made right with God? And, and, and Paul just thunders in the book of Galatians. And so he comes to Galatians 4 and he says in verse 15, what has happened to all your joy? What's happened to your joy? And the answer is, there's no joy because I've got to do, 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 and I realize I don't measure up. And then he, he, he pours on the teaching. He says in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, I, I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision as a means of being made right with God, that he is obligated to keep the whole law, and you are severed from Christ. You have been you would have, be, if you've been, would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. He says, if you're in the bandwagon, I've got to do something to be made right. You're severed from Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus. You don't get the gospel. And, and so I've got to glory in the gospel. So later in his life, back to Wesley. Wesley is in a pamphlet warfare, which they did in those days with a guy named Dr. Robertson. But Dr. Robertson says this. He says, the immediate, essential, necessary means of uniting one to God are prayer, putting sin to death, and self-denial. Says so you want to be made right with God, you got to pray, put sin to death, and deny yourself. And Wesley fires back. No, the immediate, essential, necessary means of reuniting me to God is living faith, and that alone. He got it. He got it. It's not a passing glance. It is the full embrace. So let me give you a few application statements. Make this pretty quick. Number one, I must every day re-believe the gospel of done. Jesus cried out on the cross. The last thing he said is, it is finished. It's over. It's done. By one sacrifice for sin, he accomplished forgiveness, embrace. The world beats you up, says you're not smart enough, not good looking enough, you haven't attained enough, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. The devil comes along and pours it on. It says he accuses you, he belittles you, he beats you down. But I need to run every day to the gospel of it is finished. I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. It's done. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Man, glory in the gospel. Now, number two, I've got to restudy the gospel and major on the wonder of salvation. So, there's nothing wrong with studying apologetics or studying end times or studying cultural content or, or how to address issues that we face. All those things are good, but the gospel has always got to be central. I've got, always got to major in the greatness and the glory and the goodness of Christ. I love the concept in 1 Peter chapter 1 that says, that says this regarding the gospel. It says that the gospel was 
to preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And in my mind, I I see angels standing on tiptoes like they're trying to peer into a, 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 maybe a a cupboard or something to say, look, can you believe that? Can you believe the triune God loves him that much? Can you believe he forgives all that? It's just incredible. They long to look at that. They, they long to understand and, 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 and see the glory of the gospel. Like Jesus says in Matthew 13, that, that many righteous men long to see what you see but didn't see it and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. The, 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 I need to constantly restudy the wonder of salvation. Now, quickly, Susanna Wesley, the mother of John, died at age 74 homeschooled her children uh, and, and wrote them lengthy letters all of her life instructing them how to live. I, I commend you biographies about Susanna Wesley. She was a wonderful woman. Um, by the way, she was one of 25, so they were very prolific. Her mother, yeah, anyway, Susanna Wesley. But Susanna Wesley was all about glancing at the cross and doing Glancing and doing, but maybe glance, but do, 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 do. Her husband dies and she has no money. She goes from house to house and she's living with different children and none of them have any money and it's just a sad thing. But, but, but at the age of 70, this is what happens to her. She goes to worship and she comes forward to take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is being served by one of the vicars there who happened to be her son-in-law who turned out to be a worthless guy, by the way. She had wonderful daughters, but they all married poorly. Pray for the people your kids will marry. They married poorly. Anyway, so, except for one, one out of seven didn't. But I, that, so, so he comes forward to give us the Lord's Supper. This is what she says. She says, as I knelt to receive the Lord's Supper, I heard him say, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, take She's heard it, what, 20,000 times? This is what she says. These words struck me and struck my heart. I knew that God, for the sake of Christ, had forgiven me all my sins. What is that? I mean, what is that? For some reason, at that moment, the gospel wasn't Assumed it became central. Boom. Boom. I mean, that's just, and, and her children, right, the, the last four years of her life, she lived a happy person. In fact, John wrote, he said, my mother had a legal night of 70 years. What do you mean by that? A legal night is that for 70 years, she lived under this pale of legalism that said you've got to do, 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 and the gospel was assumed. And so, so I, I say to you, I say to me, I've got to restudy the glory and goodness of the gospel of grace. Number three, very quickly, two more points. Number three is I've got to rejoice in the shepherding goodness of Jesus. I, I've got to some of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 16, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. 
Behold, I have a beautiful inheritance. I said the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 16 or Psalm 84. Um, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is his son and his shield. Or uh, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my days and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Realizing that all of those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All those promises are fulfilled in the coming of the Lamb of God who will fulfill the sacrificial system. And so when Paul writes Romans 8, he's glorying in that. And he says in verse 31, he says, what shall we say in response to all of this? All the good things that God has done in our salvation. And then he says this. This logic is so glorious. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not also along with him graciously give us all things? What shall we say in response to this? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If God is God who justifies, who is going to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he's risen from the dead and he's praying at the right hand of God the Father. He says, how do you know that God is for you? He says, behold the cross. Behold the cross. The one who didn't spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, with him will give us everything we need. So I rejoice in the shepherding goodness of God. And then the last thing is this. I've got to be intentional to think well. You've got to be intentional to think well. You, you, you can't just kind of float into this. You've got to be a person who thinks about the scripture and you think about the righteousness of Christ and you sing about it and you ponder it and you glory in it. And oh, listen to me. There needs to be a button in our den or on our desk and we imaginary button. It's the I don't care button. Boom, I don't care. I'll give me an example. So this is March. Historically, March has not been a good month for my marriage. And my wife grew up overseas. She's delightful, but she doesn't understand the absolute enthralling joy of March Madness. She doesn't get it. And so, quite frankly, my love for March Madness has dissipated because of the one and done. I just don't like basketball the way I used to. But, so I'd be watching a game, maybe some team from Washington's playing some team from New Jersey and and she says, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm watching this game. Is it important? Of course it's important. It's March Madness. Every game is important. How can every game be important? There's 64 teams. I uh, can't answer that question. But it's just it's important, you know? And so, but, but, but there comes a point sometimes where, you know, you, I don't care. I don't care. Another example. So this week I went to community group. We have a great community group. And they were, they were wanting to talk about the Megan and Harry interview. And I'm thinking, I missed it. You know, I just, I didn't miss it. I mean, I'm, I'm not superior to those that watched it, those of you that watched it. I, I, I didn't watch it, but I, um, they, they were talking about it. And then I started reading about it. Everybody's talking about Megan and Harry. And I just want to say, man, listen, we won the war. You know, they lost at Yorktown. Two years later, they surrendered. So we don't have to put up with that. We don't have to put up with the royal family and their dysfunction. You know, thank you, George Washington. Thank you, Henry Knox. You know, thank you, you know, Horatio Gates. Thank you, Alexander Hamilton. We won the war. And, and, and you know, we don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to, you know, just send them back to England. Send them back. You know, we don't want them. You know, but, but, listen, you, you know what you do? I don't care. It's like kind of a, 
updated keeping up with the Kardashians. I don't care. You got to hit some of those buttons to think well. That's what I'm saying. Okay? Thanks be to God for the goodness of the gospel. Glory in the greatness of Christ. If you've never understood the gospel of grace as being the center point of the Christian faith and that which covers your sin instead of the gospel of do, 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 run to Jesus. Lord, we need you every day and we praise you for your goodness this day. I just ask that you work in our lives. Give us the sense of rightness before you by the cross alone in Jesus' name. Amen.